0: A special episode this week for you: an interview with Professor Mark Galliotti, an expert on Russia. Mark will introduce himself, and we'll get on with the interview.
1: I'm Mark Galliotti. I'm a variety of bits and pieces. Actually, uh, in my career, I've been an academic, and I'm still an honorary professor at University College London. Uh, at the moment, I head up a small consultancy called Mayak Intelligence, and I've also worked for think tanks and the government at different times and basically I look at Russian politics and security affairs and my most recent book is The Weaponization of Everything that is precisely about all the non-military ways that other countries mess with others which would seem to be at the very other end of the scale from this podcast but as we all know nuclear weapons are also instruments of haggling and intimidation and everything else.
0: I invited podcast listeners to submit questions for Professor Galliotti, So the first few are from Atomic Hobo listeners, and then we move on to a few which have been preying on my mind. So the first one was from my podcast patron, Jonathan Abelins, and he had two questions. And the first one was, what are the actions by the US or NATO that Putin could see as a threat, existential or otherwise, that merits, in his opinion, a nuclear response Yeah, I think that
1: that uh, magic word existential that is being sort of banded around a lot really sort of is crucial there. I mean, essentially, I think that although, and we'll, we'll be coming on to this with some of the other questions, although it's a little bit harder to predict Putin and particularly be able to put absolute faith in his rationality these days. Essentially, we're talking about anything that makes it look as if the West And we should realize that when we say the West, as far as Moscow is concerned, that basically means America. The rest of us are just assumed to be the sort of spear carriers in America's army. But anyway, if if America committed itself either to regime change, I think that is something that would certainly, I mean, I'm not saying it it, it would get Putin launching nukes, but nonetheless, you know, it really would um, worry them considerably. Or if it looked as if there was going to be an attack on actual Russian soil. And under normal circumstances, one would consider that to be absolutely inconceivable. However, the problem is Crimea. That Crimea is a territory that although we, and indeed international law, say is still part of Ukraine, Putin, and frankly most Russians, regard as part of the Russian Federation. So that is one of the sort of, I think, the potential uh, you know, problem areas in the future.
0: And another question from Jonathan. He noted some, um, what he calls, hawkish suggestions on Twitter, and he quotes one which said, from from an expert, we should, quote, bomb relevant Russian cities preventatively to make sure that Putin does not use chemical arms or nukes. Wake up, we are at this stage. I'll admit that when the conflict broke out, I was um, made very, very anxious by Twitter, especially all the demands to close the sky. Obviously, we can see why Ukraine wanted that, obviously we can, but at the same time it terrified me because, well, as far as I can see, that would be a direct conflict between Russia and NATO, that's nuclear war. So um, what do you think, Mark, of um, hawkish suggestions like that, that we should just charge in there and quote, bomb relevant Russian cities?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think hawkish suggestions is perhaps actually being overkind to what one could also describe as absolutely bonkers suggestions. <laughs> and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, when it comes to things like you know closing the sky, you know, a, a no-fly zone makes it sound all nice and magic, as if it's some kind of Harry Potter spell that you wave your wand and suddenly no, no planes are flying. Another way of describing a no-fly zone is an aerial combat zone. And, and I think this is one of the problems. Look, I mean, that 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 particular um, tweet. I mean, it's, 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 it's always a bit uh, invidious to be down to the person. But I mean, Anders Ursland, who made that tweet, I mean, he is an, he is an economist. Um, and therefore, in some ways, I think his strategic suggestions should be treated with exactly the same degree of reverence as any comments from me about economics. I, mean, I think this is the trouble. There is this notion that somehow we ought to be standing up and calling the Russians bluff, which we are, it has to be said, in so many ways. You know, We are actually waging an absolutely unprecedented campaign of economic warfare, because let's call sanctions what they are, against Russia, coupled with a political, cultural one, and also sort of massive arming of, of the Ukrainians. But the idea that actually somehow there will be a preventative role in launching strikes against Russian cities... Well, I mean, first of all, he seems to have this notion that somehow chemical stocks and nuclear weapons are based inside cities, when of course they're not. And secondly, he doesn't appreciate, it seems, the degree to which absolutely that would be not only regarded as an act of war by the Russians, it would be an act of war. And even if it doesn't go nuclear, because, you know, I think for everyone, nuclear is still a a terrifying taboo, thank God. But that is almost opening up the way. I mean, Ersland lives as i well, certainly he used to, um, lives in, in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is unlikely to get shelled. But on the other hand, Tallinn and Warsaw and many other cities are, are well within the R- Russian capacities to strike back without having to go nuclear. So, no, I mean, I think this, this would be an escalation with absolutely no value to it whatsoever.
0: Um, turning to another question from one of my podcast listeners. This is from Warwick Piermand. He asks, given the dire state of Russia's conventional weapon systems and logistics, in large part due to kleptocracy and low skill levels among the troops, what percentage of nuclear missiles are likely to function as advertised, if at all?
1: Well, I mean, I think we can unfortunately certainly take out that if at all. I mean, the idea that that, that Russia's entire strategic and tactical stockpile would just kind of fizzle um, is is lovely, but no, it's not going to happen. I mean, first of all, it's worth noting that obviously we, we focus on the failures, not least because those are the ones that, that we hear about. And obviously the, the Ukrainians have every good reason to to hype. But actually a lot of Russian military kit is unfortunately working perfectly well. And particularly I mean, if we're looking at the strategic rocket forces, the strategic forces generally you know, also includes the uh, aviation. I mean, these are forces that are, first of all, they have a disproportionately high number of professional soldiers, so-called contractniki, rather than conscripts. Secondly, they tend to, to basically be assigned soldiers who have higher levels of um, skill sets. And thirdly, strategic forces are in a constant cycle of exercises, training missions, and so forth. So sure, I'm sure I'm, some wouldn't work. But when you have something like 1,500 strategic warheads, That is amply enough to blow up the world multiple times. How many times do you need to blow up the world? So, I mean, I I think that that's actually an issue we we really shouldn't think about, because obviously the whole point about deterrence is for deterrence to work, it has to be credible. And I think in some ways, almost I I really wouldn't want to kind of pick at that particular issue too much um, because so long as both sides, well, I say both sides, I mean, okay, in theory, it's more than two sides, um, you know, feel that any any movement on strategic nuclear forces would potentially mean thermonuclear Armageddon for everyone. In some ways, it is actually the assumption that it'll work that keeps that happening, keeps us all honest. I would, though, say there's a difference when we come to the tactical warheads, and this is one of the reasons, I mean, we'll be talking about this later, but one of the reasons why, I'm a a bit more sanguine about the the risks of Putin using a tactical warhead in Ukraine, because these have basically been packed away in uh, about 12 depots around the Russian Federation ever since 1990. 1990 was the last time they did any kind of test. So these have basically been mothballs for 30 years, and they would have to be taken out, reconditioned moved to where the uh, launch system would be, probably an Iskander or Kaliber missile mated onto that and then launched. That is, first of all, it's, it's very visible to Western intelligence. And I'm sure there are all kinds of spy satellites, technical intelligence and so forth, precisely monitoring that. But also, we re- basically, there are no Russian soldiers who have actually done this. They will be doing it from manuals. I mean, I, I just recorded something in my own podcast in Moscow shadows, just if anyone's interested, saying, that look, I, I have enough trouble with IKEA furniture. I'm really not quite sure how far the Kremlin would want to put its trust in what a bunch of Russian technicians working their way through manuals will be able to do with tactical nuclear weapons. So, you know, I, I mean, I think it is actually, fortunately, in this respect, um, a factor that might well, apart from things like common sense, deter Moscow from using tactical weapons in the Ukrainian conflict too.
0: Okay, thank you. Leading on from what we just talked about, uh, Brian Hagen asked, "You know, could Putin be tempted to use a tactical nuke in Ukraine? And that's been my fear um, throughout this whole uh, war so far. But uh, recently on Twitter, uh, the Twitter account Russian Forces reminded us why they're called tactical weapons. And that's something that I hadn't even thought of. To me, a tactical weapon was simply one with a low yield or a lower yield. But he reminded us, a tactical weapon is one that's used for a military tactic, such as taking out a column of tanks. And he sees no scenario currently in the war in Ukraine where that would be of any use. So do you agree with that? Do you think the only use or the only purpose of a tactical weapon currently would be to to terrify or to make some kind of bold statement?
1: I mean, I think essentially, yes. I mean, we have to realise that the, the tactical warheads the Russians have got, like the American ones, are largely dial and nuke um, in the sense of they can be set to a whole range of yields from less than one kiloton all the way up to typically 50, which is basically what three Hiroshima's. So obviously that gives a certain degree of, of versatility. But still, I mean, you know, first of all, there's, there's the, I said, the difficulty of actually using them as I, as I mentioned. Secondly, yes, there is that question of, well, what do you use it for? So far, at least, Ukrainian forces are not really kind of clustered in the kind of concentration where you might think, oh, that's too tempting a target. You know, we can drop one Iskander with a new warhead in the middle of them and wipe out, you know, all the the best troops of the Ukrainian military or something like that. Um, So, yeah, I think it's hard to see there being any kind of military rationale. The political rationale would be there's there's a prevailing notion, which is largely wrong. The, the Russians have an escalate to de-escalate doctrine. In other words, you you advance militarily conventionally as far as you can. And then in order to deter and dissuade the other side from counterattacking, you, you know, hit a, an air base or whatever with a nuclear weapon. And more or less say, oh, there could be more of those if you try and test us and try and fix the battle lines. And that is a caricature of what the Russians have, which is actually an escalation management approach. But at the same time, there is clearly still a a doctrinal refusal to contemplate the use of nuclear weapons, except when there is an existential threat to the motherland. And although one could um, argue that Crimea would count under that, the Donbass is not. So, you know, it, it would be breaking a taboo, and it would be doing so precisely to try and create a political effect that would be incredibly unpredictable. I mean, actually would hitting an air base outside Lviv with a nuclear weapon, let's say, would that force the Russians, sorry, the Ukrainians to surrender or would it actually redouble their determination? Much more significantly, what would NATO do? I mean, I think it would absolutely be a game changer in terms of how we looked at Russia. I mean, it really would, I think, make us see Russia as a pariah regime that's even less predictable than say North Korea. And I suspect that at least some Western governments will be saying at this point, there is nothing for it but regime change. You know, we have to see how we can basically assassinate Putin and, and, and bring down his regime. So I think, you know, it, it would be a very unpredictable move. And the last point I'd make, which is sometimes I think overlooked, Beijing. The Chinese, who it's worth noting, have a no first use approach. I mean, I think they will be very, very unhappy to see this war go nuclear and above all the nuclear taboo broken. Firstly, because they themselves have a lot of investment in Ukraine. Ukraine is their main source of corn imports. But also, and again, thinking forward for if and as and when they go after Taiwan, if they feel that the tactical nuclear taboo has been broken, then that's something that they're going to have to factor in. That are they potentially going to face American tactical, tactical nuclear weapons? Precisely which you know one of which could take out a carrier battle group type thing. So I think there's a lot of reasons why not. However, Putin today is much much less predictable. Three months ago I'd have said not a chance. Now I still think it's monstrously unlikely. But you know Putin, who was once very risk averse, is now rather more of an old man in a hurry. And so we can't be absolutely sure. But I'm largely comfortable.
0: Okay, Thank you. And that feeds into my next question, then, Mark, which is one that, that I've written for you. You said Putin there is more of an old man in a hurry. So I've asked, do you think he cares as much these days about nuclear deterrence? Is he, you know, constrained by it as much as he was previously? Because it seems that we are the ones being deterred, whilst he is—he seems reckless or very ready to threaten and gamble. So, what, what's the difference there? Is it because he is getting older? Can't be as simple not, as that, surely.
1: It, it can't be as simple as that, surely. Surely not. We don't really know. I mean, there is clearly something. I mean, look, I've been watching Putin since before he was president, and certainly that the Putin which we see these days is is very unlike the Putin that we saw, say, before COVID. Now, some people say it's because he's ill, because he's taking steroids, because of COVID and isolation, because of age. Who knows? I mean, at the moment, we're we're all just making suppositions. But certainly there is something very different there about him. However, I would say, yes, he cares about deterrence, because at the moment, deterrence is in some ways what allows him to get away with what he does. He's relying on the fact that precisely we are not going to push him to that stage. And this allows him to be the risk taking bad boy because he relies on us being the adults in the room. And look this is not something new. I mean back in 2014 when the Danes were thinking about taking part in a sort of NATO-wide anti-ballistic missile program the Russians were very unhappy about. rightly frankly seeing it as aimed towards them not the claimed sort of Iranian strike or something. What did the Russians do? Well amongst all kind of very sort of pompous and fiery declaratory statements when the Danish Um, cabinet was on the island of Bornholm, the Russians launched a simulated nuclear strike on Bornholm as as just part of a military exercise. But they sent nuclear bombers streaking in and then breaking off as if they had just launched, um, again, tactical nuclear strike on on Bornholm. I mean, that was as unsubtle as you can get. But the point is, you know, I think the, the Russians could be confident that it wasn't going to go anywhere. It's not actually as if, as a result, NATO was going to say, right, let's start mobilizing our own nuclear forces. So I think this has always been the case, that Putin has relied on deterrence. Does that mean that he himself doesn't feel deterred? Well, I mean, I think we we should draw some comfort to the fact that even the latest iteration of Putin clearly does not feel that he can escalate at any point without any concern. Think of what happened to Kiev. He made a very serious bid to take Kiev. Not just the political capital, but also sort of you know culturally and politically very important. He failed. But rather than thinking, right, I'm gonna, you know, nuke Kiev or whatever, he withdrew his forces to concentrate elsewhere. You know, there is there is clearly still a degree of 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 rationality. So, I mean, and I and also it's worth noting, there is no attempt to tangle with NATO. Even if you look at Russian air operations in Ukraine skies, they're almost all in. Central and Eastern Ukraine, He's not sending planes into Western Ukraine where they would be pinged by NATO surface-to-air systems, and and you know there's more of a chance of some kind of confliction. You know, a plane that accidentally crosses the border or something like that. So there is clearly still restraint. A lot of this is actually about, you know, going back to Nixon's madman notion. You know, if you look, if you present yourself as being so dangerous that no one should mess with you it actually acts as a turn to the other side. But again, I think this is a tactic rather than this man is indeed barking mad and doesn't care.
0: Thank you. Uh, Turning to your recent article, Mark in the Spectator, about the recent Russian missile test, Uh, they alerted America in advance, as they were obliged to do under under treaties. So can we take uh, much comfort from that? Does that imply to us they've not completely gone rogue? They're still abiding by the rules? They're still being civilised? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in in part, it is that
1: you've got a situation where there is, you know, a large military bureaucracy that still does things the way it's meant to do things. And there's an element in which, well, that's that's what we're going to do before a a test. It's not necessarily the case that Putin himself was, for example, specifically asked or um, said this must be done. Um, But on the other hand, it, it, it was done. I mean, at least at least one one can draw some comfort from that. And I think generally speaking, again, the thing is that the Russians, on the one hand, they're talking about this as being a proxy war with the West that just happens to be being fought in Ukraine. And you've got a lot of hawkish voices who are claiming that in part because they're trying to make the case why why it's OK to now say this is a war and declare a national mobilization. You know, there's a lot of innovative lobbying. We shouldn't assume that just because Putin is the final decider, it doesn't mean that there isn't politics in Russia. And there are different groups trying to influence him and and sort of push their own sort of agenda. And, you know, there are clearly people within within the system who are trying desperately to stop this from escalating, to stop this from being bigger than just simply a Russo-Ukrainian war. Uh, And that includes people within the military. So, I mean, I I think that it's it's, it's largely, I think, um, a, a reassuring sign. It's worth noting that the Russians are still talking about the possibility in the future of further arms talks. And also extending them into things like the realm of cyber it is just the difficulty of knowing which particular group is going to prevail in influencing putin on any particular day
0: okay thank you Uh, and again that leads us to the next question which is um if putin decided to to use a nuclear weapon and it was and the generals realized that it was of course ludicrous or could lead to obviously total destruction could they refuse to carry out his order? Now, I know they could literally say no, but how feasible is that? Would it be prison or a bullet in the head if he said no to him? How feasible is it that they could turn against him and say you've gone too far?
1: This is an interesting question. There's obviously a lot of talk about, you know, can there be a palace coup against Putin and such like? And unfortunately, the system is inefficient at so many things, but very efficient actually at internal security. And there is quite a sort of a balance of terror within the Russian system with different agencies watching each other and, and counterbalancing themselves. And I think there's a situation where a lot of people, including people within the military and other security apparatus at the moment, are probably wishing that Putin was gone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They are horrified by what's going on. They're seeing, you know, whether it's because they're worried about the long term future of Russia or whether they're just simply seeing the ruble in their pocket devalued. But one way or the other, they think it's disastrous. But I think they are in this classic situation where who is going to be the first person to start that conversation in a system where you know that the risks of turning, moving against Putin are vastly higher at the moment, at least, and the risks of not doing so. When you, you know, fear that your phone may well be being bugged mm-hmm. and you don't know who could be an informant for the security agencies and such like. It would probably take something quite dramatic to force, to catalyze the kind of generalized sense of discomfort with the situation and turn it into actually an outright resistance. It has to be said that a nuclear order might be just that thing. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, legally speaking, if people say no, and it's not that actually the government or the parliament is willing to invoke the clause that says the president is not capable of fulfilling his duties, then yes, that's, that, that, that's a court martial offense, no question. In practice though, especially if you're talking strategic nuclear weapons, in other words, you know, please come and join me on the thermonuclear pyre of the world. Then that is something I, that I think there, there will be a definite possibility, definite possibility um, of, of, of that kind of, of, of thing exactly kind of galvanizing resistance. The thing is that I suspect Putin must be aware of that too. And again, I think this is a deterrent factor. And he's actually demonstrated that he knows he has to manage the security interests and apparatuses. And on the one hand, that's about controlling them. And on the other hand, it's about not pushing them into a position where they feel they have no alternative but to say no. So, you know, so long as Putin is rational, you know, touch wood and so forth, that will actually be an additional factor precisely deterring him from going nuclear.
0: Okay, thank you. Right, a very long
1: answer to a short and pertinent question.
0: Uh, and I have two more questions for you, Mark. Firstly, what do you think of the theory that Putin is planning a big announcement for May the 9th? And um, if there is going to be one, what could it be? Um, formal declaration of war or mobilisation?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of talk, but I th- a lot of it, I think, is precisely just built on the fact of, you know, the 9th of May, Victory Day is in some ways the high, holy day of the kind of patriotic pantheon. And therefore, there is an expectation that Putin will say something Often these expectations actually do end up fizzling up that, you know, he'll he'll just he'll give a boilerplate speech saying we're all proud of being Russians and Russians are great. And we're a victorious nation. And oh, by the way, you know, we're just as we fought the Nazis in the great patriotic war, we're we're fighting the Nazis in Ukraine today. That kind of thing without leading anywhere. And a lot of the debate is precisely driven by the fact that, as I mentioned, there is real politics in Russia, at least within that kind of higher elite. And there are those who are advocating it. I mean, from the military's point of view, look, they are, they're in a very bad position in, in Ukraine because essentially this is a peacetime Russian armed forces that is not geared for a full scale war in a large European country. I mean, essentially the, 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 the Russian military is kept at about kind of 70% strength with mix of conscripts and professionals so that it's sufficient for kind of you know, deployments into places like Syria, small wars like the invasion of Georgia. But the expectation was always going to be if we're going to be fighting a big war, it will be on the back of a full mobilization. That means we'll have brought all our units up to full strength. Well, they've been sent into a big war without a mobilization. So you know, there are certainly those within the military who say we need to have a formal declaration of war, which then legally unlocks a mass mobilisation, so you can call up the reserves, and you can basically keep conscripts in service more than their own twelve months. So there are certainly there are the people who are actually advocating it. There are people who are advocating that simply because they really want to kind of militarise the society as a whole and crack down on everybody and and so forth. And there's a lot of people who don't want that for all these various reasons. So in some ways, I think a lot of the debate about Victory Day is really driven by people trying to to basically lobby the boss. All I can say is we're certainly not getting any foreshadowing. We're not getting any kind of hints from uh, Putin's press spokesman, Peskov, or anyone else, implying that there is going to be some big, significant announcement, some sort of, oh, you know, you might well be wanting to watch and and, and listen and, and that kind of thing, which there would usually be. Final caveat, though. I mean, you know, basically Putin declared war as a when he declared war, or, or well, he didn't declare war. When he started the quote-unquote special military operation in Ukraine, for a lot of his even his own ministers, they learned the same time we did. So this is a very very personalistic system where he literally could get up that morning and decide. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? It's going to be this or that. So you know, we have to have caveats. But at the moment, I don't see signs of any kind of dramatic moves. So watch me, watch him prove me wrong in one week's time.
0: Okay, Thank you. And my final question. um, In the Cold War, Reagan was often dismissive of the USSR's fear of attack and invasion and said, if I'm remembering the quote correctly, that they were just, quote, rattling their pots and pans. And he also said, what the hell have they got that anyone would want? So do you think... Putin is rattling his pots and pans, or does he genuinely think that NATO wants to eventually invade or attack Russia?
1: Look, he genuinely believes, in my opinion, that NATO, the West, is this hostile conspiratorial force. I mean, basically, he thinks that Russia has been a political war with the West really since 2013, 2014. He saw the the Yeromaidan rising rebellion in Ukraine, which brought down the sort of corrupt uh, Yanukovych regime, as not the natural and organic response of a people to an unresponsive and corrupt government, but as clearly uh, an operation that was masterminded by the CIA. And, and MI6, it's worth mentioning. I, I mean, God bless the Russians. They still regard Britain as amongst their most subtle and dangerous antagonists. So it's nice to know someone thinks we count. So you know, there is this definite sense of, of, of a political war. And you know, certainly amongst his circle, there are people who genuinely believe that there is a long-term plan, not just to sort of marginalize and confine Russia and to sort of basically break Russia to the West's will, but even quite possibly to dismantle Russia so that they can get at the raw you know, the materials of siberia that doesn't necessarily translate into a belief in an invasion i mean you know if one looks at nato's forces i mean there's no way at the moment that nato could could invade um it just doesn't have that that kind of forces so i mean i think there there is a sense of 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 war of conflict but not necessarily invasion. But the point is, their view is precisely this is how the West fights. It stirs up unrest, it creates protest movements that it then supports, and basically makes countries rip themselves apart. So, you know, this is war by other means. He certainly doesn't think that Russia has nothing that anyone would want. And let's be honest, I mean, look at oil, you look at gas, you look at diamonds, you look at all kinds of other materials. Um, you know, there, there is still a lot in Russia to say nothing of the human capacity, the human potential of its population. So, I mean, I think this this is, of course, often stage managed for particular political purpose, that he will often talk very, very sort of vitriolically, both to try and um, impress on his own population that Russia is a beleaguered fortress, because that has basically become the rationale for his authoritarian regime. It's basically, look, I know things aren't great but we are a beleaguered fortress, we need to hang together or else these nasty Westerners will will sort of, you know, deny us our sovereignty and, uh, you know, force us all all, all to become gay and whatever, there's all kinds of weird cultural and ahistorical concepts that are thrown in there. Um, So there is a political dimension, but as I said, it's not just a political dimension. I think this is a man who genuinely believes that we have this kind of these long-term designs on Russia. And although he doesn't expect to see... Uh, Western tanks rolling over the border, not least because there aren't many Western tanks left. But definitely, you know, he he's rattling his pots and pans because he's trying to scare us off.
0: Thank you, Mark. And before we finish, can you tell us a bit more about your podcast?
1: Sure. I mean, my my podcast in Moscow Shadows is a you know, out and out vanity project, I occasionally have guests, but primarily it's just me rambling on about whatever I think of as the, the interesting Russia stories at the moment, which therefore tend to reflect my own particular interests, which is sort of high politics, low um, gangsterism and the sort of security apparatus in between. And at the moment, of course, it's pretty much Ukraine focused because that's really the big story in town.
0: So a huge thank you to Mark Galliotti for speaking to me. You can find him on Twitter where he is a reassuring and knowledgeable voice at Mark Galliotti. and his latest book is The Weaponization of Everything: A Field Guide to the New Way of War. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It's something different from what we usually have on this podcast, of course, and I have a few more interviews scheduled. Later this week, I am speaking to Richard Spencer, a Times correspondent who recently wrote a very distressing article about conditions down in the Kharkiv metro. Uh, When I read it, I immediately emailed him and asked if he'd please speak to us on the podcast about it, and I'm very fortunate that he said yes. So please do subscribe to Atomic Hobo if you haven't already, so that you don't miss the notification for that one. And I want to say a special thank you this week to my patron Ellen Calloway. She made a kind donation to the podcast through PayPal, and it's through her kind support, and of course the support of all my patrons, that I'm able to devote extra time to the podcast and seek out these interviews. That's something that your financial support gives me. It's not just buying kits and buying books and archive access, but it buys me the luxury of time to spend working on this podcast. So you can make a one-off donation, or think of it as leaving a tip, at paypal.me forward AtomicHobo. Remember you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website at juliemcdowell.com. And as I play my nuclear music here, let me thank my recent patrons. If you want to join my Patreon and get rewards such as additional podcast episodes and a signed copy of my book when it's out in April, please go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And thanks this week to Randy Delaney, uh, whose name I should have mentioned a couple of weeks ago, but for some reason I kept forgetting him. Sorry, Randy. Also Keith Derham, who joined my Patreon just as I was typing this up. Always nice to be interrupted with a beep from the phone saying you have a new patron. Thank you also to Chris Wiesensel, Jackie Boy, Natalie Yarosh, Ali Nicholson and Kate Mercer and an increase in their monthly pledge from my existing patrons Heather Duff, Benfield and Andre Russell. Thank you all and I'll be back later this week with that interview from Richard Spencer.